Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Hey Roger, how are you, Anastasia? Sir? Hello. Uh, um, so this week uh, we have uh, well, two guests. Uh, the main guest is uh, Anastasia Keegan, who's a head of a um, hematology here at our uh, women's hospital, and she's uh, I think Siv, you organised the um, um, invitation. Yeah, she's very kindly to given up on. her time and her expertise to come teach us a thing or two. So yeah. really appreciate it. I'm very <laughs> delighted, but you must promise to be gentle with me because it's my first podcast with you guys. So be gentle. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think um, as an introduction, um, Anastasia usually gives a tutorial to our um, anaesthetic trainees here. And so we thought um, the best way to sort of structure this um, discussion would be to follow that uh, tutorial that she normally gives. So... What we thought we would do is, um, um, Siv and I are going to be the registrars today. Yeah. We're going to sit here and listen and ask um, intelligent or sometimes unintelligent <laughs> questions <laughs> and sort of tease out some of the things that um, she's going to teach us. Excellent. Uh, well, again, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to present today. Um, as Roger said, I'm a hemato- an obstetric hematologist, and so all of my time is spent in obstetric hematology and, and gynaecology um, for women with abnormal bleeding and clotting disorders. And so this presentation is really focused for the trainees at a women's hospital, and it's entitled uh, Congenital Bleeding Disorders in Pregnancy. So I have the pleasure of working through the Maternal Fetal Medicine Clinic, where I get to look after these women with congenital bleeding disorders. And so I invite the registrars along, the anaesthetic registrars along, to kind of understand what I would do in one of my typical clinics. So I'm going to talk you through some of those things that I would do today. But before I jump into what's abnormal, I think it's really, really important to understand what's normal. Yep. Mm. And so I start by saying, what are those normal changes that happen to a woman during pregnancy? Well, the first thing is the platelets. Most people on the on the line definitely know about the development of a mild thrombocytopenia, particularly around that third trimester of pregnancy. But we know the platelets function properly and they might actually have increased function, particularly in the third trimester. Then we think about the clotting factors. And when I think about clotting factors, I think about what um, clot, clotting factors increase or what clotting factors stay the same, but also what are the driving from the endothelial perspective. So we know that the endothelium uh, increases the amount of um, fibrinogen, uh, von Willebrand's factor, and increased thrombin activation as well. But there's also an estrogen-driven increase in the amount of factor 7, 8, 10, um, and as I mentioned before, fibrinogen. But importantly for some women with congenital bleeding disorders, there's no change in factor 11 and or factor 9. So the reason for that is that there's so much redundancy within the coagulation system that you don't need to increase everything on, on balance overall, but there are some key clotting factors that do increase. Okay. So I was just going to um, ask a quick question. Quick question. So Mother Nature, this is an evolutionary thing, isn't Absolutely. it? Because obviously when you have a baby, you're at risk of bleeding. So it's, I mean, there must be some strong advantages to having increase in all these clotting factors. Absolutely. So other yeah. than being chased by a saber-toothed tiger, the woman's yeah. number one chance of yeah. dying would be during childbirth. Yeah. So women do head towards being overall in a global picture, being hypercoagulable. Yeah. So that's why women clot during pregnancy. But not just because those clotting factors increase, you also have a reduction in your natural anticoagulants. Right. And the most notable factor is you have a reduction in protein S. 
um, not a lot of change in protein C, not a lot of change in um, and antithrombin levels. Um, but importantly, whenever we form a clot, our body naturally will break down clots. And the other thing that will add to you being a little bit more clotty is the fact you have suppressed fibrinolysis. And that um, suppression really drops off when you're into labour. So when you're in the established second um, phases of labour, then we know that fibrinolysis clicks back on, um, which stops women having catastrophic clots um, postpartum. And that's hormonal again, is it? Absolutely. So, so sorry, when, does it, yeah. when does it click back in? Kind of, it starts to switch on when you're in your in established labour, so the second right. stage of labour. That's when fibrolysis comes back? Absolutely. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh. And so it's interesting when we, um, maybe we, at another time we can talk about when we give tranexamic acid yes. and what patient population. And so knowing when you have your almost fibrinolysis um, uh, plug turn off or start yep. to open again can really help with the timing of um, giving TXA for some women. Yes. So I've now thought, okay, I know what's normal and I'm about to see somebody who has something that's abnormal, but how do I know that that person really does have an abnormal bleeding disorder? Hopefully they've come from one of the state haemophilia treatment centres and they've got a lovely letter with genetics and all the tests involved and I really respect the haematologist involved and I don't need to do anything. No, I jest. But that happens (laughs) rarely. (laughs) And it's probably like when you would see a woman who has um, a heart condition or a lung condition, you always need to ask questions. Mm. And so if I have a... um, I would always go through the process of quantifying the woman's bleeding risk. And so it's daggy, but I absolutely do something known as the ISTH bleeding assessment tool or the ISTH BAT. And the ISTH BAT uh, contains 14 different areas uh, where the woman may present with bleeding signs and symptoms. Starts with mucocutaneous, goes to GI, goes to urogenital, um, goes to surgical challenges, spends a lot of time talking about menstrual history and any potential blood loss during um, babies, and then talks about joint bleeds and other unusual sites of bleeding. If they have bleeding in any of these areas, we score or we rate the severity of their bleeds between zero and four. And because we know women have different hemostatic challenges to men, the reference ranges of what would be classified as normal abnormal vary between gender and also between the age of the person. Yep. So for a woman, anyone who had a score less than six, that's classified as normal, really because of the fact we menstruate and have babies. And if you have a score less than four in men, that would be classified as normal. So this sounds dreadful, but I've definitely got calls at two o'clock in the morning and a registrar, anaesthetic registrar says, I've got a woman, she tells me she's got von Willebrand's disease. She can't tell me anything else about it. She's never had treatment. Yep. So at 2am, I do say, can you do a bleeding assessment score? Mm. They are available online. You can download them and it takes about three minutes. And if yep. you've got a really high score, I'm sitting up, lights turning on and I'm seeing what else we need mm. to do to look after this woman. So they do help you. This will this is a validated screening score that will pick up 70 to 85% of congenital bleeding disorders. So they will have limitations that we should always do this prior to a diagnosis being made. But sometimes when you've got nothing else, you don't have laboratory tests, you don't have a history. If the woman's still awake, it's a really good place to say, am I worried or am I not worried? No. Do you mind... Sorry, I was going to say this. So there's 14 different things mm. that you ask about, and then um, the, the scores go from looks zero, like to, zero four. to four. Yeah. Mm. So just to give our readers, uh, listeners rather, Absolutely. an understanding of what that might be, do you mind just reading out the one for the cutaneous, for example, sure. and just what each of the numbers represent? Absolutely. So if we think about those mucocutaneous changes, so nosebleeds, um, easy bleeding or bruising, or cuts, or how much you bleed from a minor cut. So if we take bruising, everyone says they bruise. Oh, I mean, easy. Yep. Lifelong, easy breathing. Absolutely. 
Um, and so we would quantify that to say if you do have a bruise, if you say you don't have any bruising, you get a zero. If you do have bruises, uh, we ask for the number of bruises and the size of those bruises. So it would be if you have more than five bruises that are more than a centimetre in, in exposed areas. So most people who have bruises have run into a table, emptied the dishwasher, bumped their leg, and yep. that's what happens. But if you've had to see a doctor because of bruising, that would give you two points. If you've had to see a doctor because of extensive bruising in non-exposed areas, that would classify it as extensive bruising, that would give you a three. But if you've had a bruise that requires a blood transfusion, that gets you a four. Yep. So yep. you can okay. kind of imagine most of the people would go, oh, I bruise, I bruise all the time. But they're a one. But yes, they're yep. going to be a zero no. or a one, which is not very exciting. But if you had a bruise that needs a blood transfusion, then you're a four. And I'm yep. sitting up going, tell me about that. But you still, if you're a woman, you still haven't clicked over enough points. Yeah. <laughs> but most women get a story of woe with the most horrible okay. menstrual cycles. So it's usually okay. most women so get big points with yeah. their menstrual okay. blood loss. Um, but I think it sounds awful, but it does give you a really easy... And it's well-validated. Absolutely. Yeah. So internationally to, validated. Yeah. Okay. So that's a really useful thing to know. Mm. And I, you can I download the app. I think you're going to tell us that getting the results from blood tests takes a long time. Absolutely. So... Yes. It's probably a really useful thing to know how to in do. In the middle of the night where you've got nothing else to help you support decisions yes. you make, it does help. So I'm sure the hematologist is going to love you when you call up and you know the answer. You don't have to do it, exactly call them back right. in 15 minutes. Exactly yeah. right. It should only take three or four, but that's okay. Um, people think you're quite weird. Now tell me, have you had any <laughs> CNS bleeding? Have you had any <laughs> bleeding to muscle joints and arthrosis? So when you're seeing those faces, um, women who do have bleeding disorders no, and they think, oh, you do this all the time. Whereas if you ask somebody who doesn't have anything wrong with them, they really do think mm. you're nuts and bolts. Yeah. So well, th- just very thorough. At <laughs> <laughs> yeah, two a.m. in the morning, everyone wants that. Yep. So I've got what's normal. I've got a screening assessment tool to help me clarify or identify women potentially at risk of congenital bleeding disorder. And then when I'm having conversations with anaesthetic trainees or even the consultant at 2 o'clock in the morning, I need to know, is there a quick, easy answer that I can give them to make them feel reassured? And unfortunately, the answer is no. There's still not an international um, approach or consensus about how to manage women with congenital bleeding disorders. And so whilst um, I'm delighted to hear there's lots of alternative agents in neurolaxal analgesia for these women, and there's been studies that show that they get excellent pain relief and they feel confident to have subsequent babies, um, the risk of having a hematoma associated with epidural um, needs to be... It's probably one of the most feared complications of an epidural. I'm getting lots of nods from the other side yes, of the desk. Yep. <laughs> so it's rare, obviously. It's, yep. it's rare if you do a spinal or an epidural to get an epidural hematoma that causes you mm. know, irreversible nerve damage, but that would be, like, catastrophic. Absolutely. So. I, I understand it's rare, and, and it, I think a lot of things we do in medicine is that what if... Would someone else say I was being reasonable or not? And I think yep. that's part of what today's presentation will be. <clears throat> but I imagine it's very hard to do a randomised controlled trial on a group of patients who are uh, one in a million. Mm. Uh, Absolutely. And, <laughs> and half are males. Be, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's right, yes. Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's, it's never going to happen really, is it? So, so by way of context, there was a uh, international consensus, uh, an approach to making international re- uh, consensus, and that group was started back in 2020, and we still haven't seen any uh, first drafts or second drafts of that publications. Right. So I think there's so a, a lot of argument going on. I think so. Mm. Yeah. So, can, sorry, mm. we can put a copy of that up maybe with the podcast. Yep, as well, I'll try like and a put a link to, the, yeah. to all the things that mm. um, Anastasia's talking about, the bleeding score and all these other um, uh, recommendations and guidelines. Fantastic. Yep. 
So if we start with a couple of patients, did you want me to start with um, who was on the list or the sort of emergency consults that I would get as I was just starting to brew my cup of tea and decide who I was seeing first? Yep. Yep. Emergency consult. Uh, yeah, do it, do it in the same order you normally Great. do. Yep. So we, um, I, apart from doing clinic, obviously I'm also on call. And so I get called by a very senior anaesthetist at my hospital. Um, and he's just about to see a woman, a woman in a high-risk anaesthetic clinic. She's 35 weeks gestation and she's booked for an elective caesarean in two weeks. But he tells me that she has factor seven deficiency. Right. Right. Sounds very obscure. Yeah. It's not a haemophilia. No. Uh, it's not Warren Willebrands. Mm. So it's one of those other Sounds really obscure bad. ones. Yeah. It's definitely one of those rare things. And just to give you some context, um, you all know that uh, factor seven is integral to the initiation of thrombosis. So you don't really get a good thrombin yep. generation without seven and thrombin. Uh, so it's really important to start the clot. But it's also... Something to do with tissue factor. Absolutely. It's all about that initial part where the floodgates are open saying this is a problem. Um, and so... When we're saying it's rare, uh, in the state where we're based, there's only 12 people registered in Western Australia who have a severe factor 7 deficiency. So it's rare and it's a proper bleeding disorder. Is it autosomal or...? It's autosomal okay. um, recessive. Okay. Yep. So only half of them are women. Absolutely. Yep. Um, so basically where I'd start with that sort of scary story is we jump onto our electronic results system and I'd go back to see what sort of levels I'm dealing with. So in our laboratory, a normal level uh, would be about 65%. And we can see through, and when I review her previous results, her levels are anywhere between 50 and um, 60%. Now, we know that, as I remember, you remember I say that factor 7 does increase a little bit during pregnancy because of the changes in the endothelium and the clotting factors. So my first approach, given that we're in the pre-admission setting and I've got a little bit of time, I say let's get another factor 7 level done to see what I'm dealing with because she's... We know that clotting factors will reach their maximum sort of level around that 30 weeks to 35 weeks gestation. They stay reasonably stable through to term. So it's a little bit helpful now that she's only two weeks away. And um, we do repeat levels and her factor 7 has gone from prior to pregnancy 48% to 60%. Okay. Sort of what we'd expect but not in the normal range. Do we have a, yeah, do we have a rough idea of like... Yeah, what percentage of levels is going to cause abnormal bleeding? Because I thought there was a bit of redundancy in a lot of these clotting factors. Definitely, but seven would be one I'd be worried about because right. of that central. Because it's at the very beginning of hemostasis. Right, okay. Um, mm. I and really, there's won't surprise you to know there's no international guidelines. There's no national so guidelines know. of what to do. So we took a really risk-based um, approach where we thought, what would we say? If this woman had normal factor 7 levels, we wouldn't be worried. So we said, let's repeat her factor 7 levels just prior to pregnancy, just prior to delivery. And if they are classified as normal, then we don't need to do anything. Okay. But if they remain under the normal level, then I think um, it would be wise to give some preventative treatment. Mm. Yep. So factor seven, um, so I did the same sort of process where I did a quick phone consult. I found out her baseline factor seven were all the way down to 30%. So um, she definitely had a bleeding phenotype um, that would be consistent with someone with moderately severe um, congenital bleeding disorder. Okay, and so, her that, so that means you did that questionnaire and she had a, 
history of bleeding. Absolutely. Yep. So she had a score of six, which yep. we all know was consistent with a woman having a congenital bleeding disorder, not okay. super high, which kind of helps how we restratify this woman. Yep. So if her level was nine or 12, we'd be a little bit more worried than her having a level of um, her score of six. And she's also had previous babies where she didn't have, she did have some um, bleeding, um, but not classified as a PPH. So okay. it does give you a little bit more reassurance because there's a lot of phenotypic variants with these. And out of curiosity, it's such an obscure thing. It must be rare to, for someone to think about ordering a test. So how absolutely how would she have been diagnosed? And so it was. was she got a family member with it, or was it? Well, what was actually happened when she was in her teen? She was having heavy periods, and they did some baseline coags when she was in her teen, and she had a slightly prolonged um, APTT, right. slightly prolonged. Um, they did mixing factors and it corrected, uh, mixing studies and it corrected. And so then they went on subsequently to do um, quantifications of her... Of all, um, of all her factors. All of her clotting factors. Okay. Yes. That, presumably that's quite expensive. Yes. And that's why they usually have seen <laughs> one of our haemophilia treatment centres right. so that most people know what's happening. So um, the good news is we have some previous history. Um, yep. We know that she's had two successful babies and her bleeding um, was, she had positive bleeding scores from GI's dental extractions and she's had some unpleasant mm. periods. So we, um, in this situation, because we can give targeted factor replacement, we can give a tiny little dose of uh, recombinant 7A or activated 7A because yep. she has a congenital deficiency in that. Um, now, just some notes on 7A. This is really rare sort of stuff and you may not need to know about it much. But in Australia, Nova 7 um, would be the product that we'd use. It has a very short half-life of only about an hour and a half. And yeah. so because she was going to have a caesarean, we could safely mm. give her a dose of replacement factor 7 just prior to her um, prior to her caesarean. A little bit tricky if she was going to labour normally or have a spontaneous delivery because you'd have to give her current doses and then we have to balance up her risk of thrombosis after that. Yeah. There's no... Because um, that's the activated effect 7. I presume that's why it's so short and yes. acting. There's no unactivated factor 7? No, because it doesn't work otherwise. So, okay. it's, uh, yeah. so we can do another bypassing agent known as FIBA. So you can give um, basically the complex that comes just under 7, yep. which is activated 8 um, complex. Uh, and that does have a longer half-life. Um, and when you have that, you just get a little bit more nervous That's not about available in Australia, though, is it? We can get FIBA get for... Um, boys who've got allo antibodies to factor eight, so we usually in um, those little ones who so have got inhibitors, yep. mm. um, but trickier to get. Um, and then really, really important to make sure she gets some tranexamic acid to stop bleeding after, because she doesn't need to have recurrent doses of factor seven. But we would expect her factor seven to head back down to kind of that thirty percent she was at baseline within the next couple of weeks postpartum. Right. And we don't want her coming back with a delayed PPH. Mm. Okay, so you're going to prescribe some tranexamic acid for Absolutely. TXA will be your take-home message other than um, blood tests don't give you all the answers, history don't give you all the answers. Um, TXA is always the answer on discharge. Okay. <laughs> if you've got a bleeding disorder. <laughs> if you've got a bleeding disorder. <laughs> yeah, we have to clarify this because I think there's been a more widespread use of TXA. Absolutely. Which is possibly another podcast. We'll yeah, definitely another podcast. <laughs> there's been some really interesting studies in the trauma setting that says one size doesn't fit all. Yes, that's right. Um. Great. So let's go into a more bread and butter patient that I'd see in my maternal fetal medicine clinic. So in this clinic, we would see those women with bleeding disorders. And this woman very proudly owns her diagnosis on von Willebrand's disease. Yep. She tells us she's got a lifelong history of von Willebrand's disease. She's seen a haematologist who said she can't have DDAVP. And when I unpacked that, they said because of her stroke risk. 
which I thought was okay, that's an, an interesting one. Mm. So we put that in bracket in the history. Um, and so she has had minor procedures such as uh, dental extractions where she's been receiving biostate, um, which is the plasma-derived treatment for patients with um, functional or very severe... I, I reckon... What, what do you reckon, Siv? Uh, I'd like to pause you there mm. and ask you to um, stop and give us a, just a bit of a background tutorial on the different types of vulnerable yeah. disease before we go on to... Absolutely. To hear about her in general. Great. So von Willebrand's disease is the most common congenital bleeding disorder. Um, yep. And about 1% of all, all Caucasian population will have a history of von Willebrand's disease or have a diagnosis of von Willebrand's disease. And there's equal distribution between males and females. So about 80% of people with von Willebrand's disease have type 1 or a mild type of von Willebrand's disease. Yep. And that's defined as having a low antigen level. So, so you just haven't got enough of it. You just don't have enough. Yep. So you, um, so say you'd normally have 150 von Willebrand antigens, your levels are sitting under 30%. You okay. can have a range between where you have lower levels, um, but the definition of type 1 von Willebrand's disease is a von Willebrand antigen level less than 30%. What is von, can even go back a step further, what, step is, what further. is von Willebrand's factor and why do, what, are, what does it do, how does it? Help so us. I described this to the ladies in the clinic and I um, put my hand out and I said this, uh, I use the desk as pretending that's the blood vessel and then I stick my arm cocked out at the side, flapping in the breeze, waving my wrist. And I say the von Willebrand's disease, well, von Willebrand's factor is the little kind of anchor that grabs onto the platelets that helps to form the very first blood clot. Yep. And then you can't form ongoing or a stable clot unless you have a hook to grab the platelets. Those platelets and the hook help attract clotting factors. So it's really about the amplification stage of the, cl- of the clot that you have abnormalities with in von Willebrand's disease. So it kind of makes everything anchor to the endothelial defect and propagates it into a form, form or a more firm clot. And then von Willebrand factor binds to and protects factor eight from degradation, Absolutely. if I'm correct. And that's right. And so if you don't have enough or dysfunctional von Willebrand's factor, then you don't form that nice stable clot because you're not protecting factor eight because it gets um, cleaved and broken down too quickly. Okay, so it has two jobs. Two and jobs. It's, and it's made by the endothelium? The majority is by the yep. endothelium. There's a little bit more from other places like liver and things, but it's mainly by the endothelium. Okay. And then just broadly, how many types of von Willebrand disease are there? So this is the bit where people get distressed. So the vast majority, so 80% will be mm. mild type 1, yep. but the rest are going to be either type 2, which can be classified into four subtypes, and their type 2 are known as functional defects. So the number of antigens are okay, but they just can't hook and capture those platelets. So there's something wrong. With They're just broken. There's enough, but there's something wrong with Absolutely. them so they don't work. So I'd say yeah. instead of my hand, instead of having five fingers grabbing to platelets, I might grab one or two platelets. Right. So they're, just, they're not as functional as they should be. And the last category or type are type 3. And these people basically have an absence of von Willebrand's, uh, von Willebrand's factor, and they clinically present as if they have haemophilia because they can't hold on to okay. those factor 8. Yep. So very significant bleeding disorder. So they Rarest hen's teeth. Yeah. Okay. And um, rarest hen's teeth. So it's like 80% of type 1 yep. and maybe 19% type 2 yep. and 1% type Absolutely. 3. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. And then, sorry, could you have, let's say, a type 2 which has a better phenotype than a type 1? A, a better? Yes. Like so you can have some that are very bad. similar. Yeah. So you can get, um, so within the subtypes of type 2, the functional disorders, um, just for those who like a bit of detail, we've got type A, type sorry, type 2A, type 2B, type 2M and type 2N. Yep. Type 2A and type 2M 
can be quite similar and can present in a similar way to those patients with type 1 von Willebrand's disease. And in the older days, before we had really good laboratory tests to diagnose, a lot of these people were diagnosed as a type 1 von Willebrand's disease. A um, lot of detail, but you can usually... that They would be the crossover groups. And so how are most of the... So 1% of the population... Mm. So how are most of these people picked up that they just go and see a GP or a doctor because they've got... Um, menorrhagia or it's usually, for a woman it's usually because of menorrhagia bleeding or, after a tooth yep, or surgery um, or something like that or in the adolescence so their first periods are dreadful and they're always dreadful and then yep. um, they are take history and mum's the same and their sisters are the same um, and sometimes it's because they have complications from dental extractions or minor surgeries, but it's usually for women to have problems. Yep. Now, remember, it's congenital, so they have to have the family history side of things as well. Some have an autosomal recessive pattern that's a little bit trickier, um, but it's usually it, it's they usually they present with a proper bleeding. So it's, so it's autosomal dominant, is it? Or? Usually, some yep. can be mixed and not known. So the type two mm. M, M's and A type two A's can be, okay. but um, yeah. So it's annoying that it's complicated, isn't it? Is. It is. <laughs> I know. I can, see, I can see I'm losing them by the second. But the point of the story is there are some nuances and yeah, no, gen- general yeah. approaches are usually safe except for one or two things. Yep. If it was easy, we wouldn't ask you to come on. So. <laughs> right. um, so my sit up and take tension, if you say they have type 3 von Willebrand's disease, I'm very nervous. Yep. Um, if you tell me type 1, I'm not so excited. Um, if you tell me type 2, I'll say which one. Um, yep. And then it all goes down from there. Yeah. Okay. All right. I think that's good. So we keep going with this one. So where do we get up to? So she said she has, she says she has type 1 von type Willebrand's one, but disease. But she's going to have a stroke if she has DDAVP. Indeed. Which is not quite no. fitting with what not, you've just told not us. What I would have, mm. Not what I would have expected. So I um, started, I had a few of my little spidey senses up thinking this doesn't quite make sense. So as per international guidelines, we would do repeat testing in the second trimester and third trimester to see what we're dealing with. And her blood investigations were really consistent with somebody who had type 2A von Willebrand's disease. Okay, which so, is so normal levels. But normal levels and her function was impaired relative to her normal and levels. And what, what blood tests is do you do to so we out? have um, we would just say now in a high level if you write this on a form you'll get the right tests so if you ask for a von Willebrand screen yep put the whole words in then you will get the five tests associated with a von Willebrand's assay okay. so we want to look for the von Willebrand antigen level we yep. want to look at the factor eight level because that helps differentiate between t- uh, the different subtypes of okay. von Willebrand's yep. We'll also look at the functional assays, which will give us something called... It's all about how well that von Willebrand's functions. So you'll hear something called a Rickoff and a collagen binding assay. Does that help assessing how well it binds the platelets? Absolutely. Or, so or you, factor eight. Yep. yep. So, um, that will, so the only thing that will tell you about type 1 will be your antigen level itself, but all the rest and all those subclasses will be defined by the functional assays, so the Rickoff, the mm. collagen binding, and the factor eight. Okay. And remember, all those things change in pregnancy. Yes. So that's the last thing that makes things really tricky. If you've got someone near the end of pregnancy, you're unlikely to diagnose what their actual underlying von Willebrand's right, disease is. Right, that's right. So you can't say they don't have it. Exactly yeah. right. But if their numbers are still through their boots, antigen levels less than 30%, function less than 5%, that's real and that's not going to change and you're going to have to treat yep. them appropriately. Mm. So this is one of these really exciting questions where I'd go to the anaesthet- my anaesthetic colleagues, how would you treat these women? How would you, give, how would you make them comfortable during their labour? Well, anaesthetists do epidurals, but they love procedures. <laughs> they love procedures, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, they can use all the other non-epidural uh, analgesia, including, Absolutely. you know, 
inhaled agents and remifentanyl PCAs, which is uh, sometimes mm-hmm. set up by us. Yep. But we want to know, is it safe? Are there, incre- are there is an increased risk of an epidural hematoma that compared to someone else? Um, and we, if it was, we would probably say, let's avoid it. I think so as well. And I think giving um, a woman an alternative to a no makes them feel reassured. So it's yep. not a no, you can't have pain relief. It's just you can't have this form. And there's plenty of other forms. Yeah, that's right. It's definitely something I've learned to have a conversation with since working in this um, setting. Um, and so, like you said, there's different risks associated with different neurolaxal analgesia as well. But do you think we would, and the next question I'd been asked by an anaesthetic trainee would be, can we do something else to improve her antigen levels or her function of her von Willebrands? Yeah. So if you've normalised it with, mm. with some treatments, should we then be happy to give an epidural? So I think uh, my global approach to somebody who, say they have type 1 von Willebrand's disease and we bring them up into a normal reference range, then I'd be happy for them to have neurolaxal analgesia. Yep. And we know that even if we don't give them treatment, those natural levels will decline over two mm-hmm. or three weeks. So I'm not worried about you taking the epidural out. So it's not just the insertion, it's also the removal that are risk. Yep. Whereas if you've got somebody who has a type 2 von Willebrand's disease and we need to give them replacement in the form of biostate or something else, now, we know the natural peaks and troughs and the half-life of these factor concentrates. I'm more nervous about those because we can't predict somebody's response to that treatment. Right. And so usually most people would say if you've got a type 2 von Willebrand's disease, you would avoid neurolaxal and Okay, because even though you've infused them with, say, some biostate or something, mm-hmm. you don't know... You don't know how they're you, going to You don't to usually then measure the levels afterwards. You're no. just assuming that they're probably okay. Yeah. Let's say if you yeah. had a prolonged labour, what mm. sort of time frame would you think about redosing, if at all? That's exactly right. So I really get worried for those primips who've got a, a poor orientation that they um, – and that's one of the management things we talk to the obstetrician about. We really don't want a prolonged labour because you can yeah. get really self, uh, false reassurance that you've given some clotting factors. But um, thankfully, Biostate has a twice the half-life of – factor eight concentrates yep so, so how, what is the half life so about 12 hours 12, 12 24 okay. hours so unless somebody's had a significant postpartum hemorrhage you can usually uh give them a dose at the time of their induction or whenever they're in established labor and yep. give a second dose 24 hours later okay um which is twice as long as what you do with um factor eight concentrate um so it's got quite a nice long half-life but you're right it's about when do you give that dose uh how quickly is she using that biostate or those factor eight and formula brands I guess the other thing we should <coughs> touch on is that as anaesthetists, we think that the risk of um, an epidural catheter is um, greater than a single-shot spinal. Mm. So you know, putting a very small, um, thin needle in to do a spinal for an uh, yeah, emergency caesarean mm. uh, so is probably much less likely to cause an epidural hematoma. So I think if um, the lady that we had, we repeated her levels in that term, she actually had a good antigen number and function. They had significantly improved. Yep. And so if you did need to do that option for her, for this, for the last case, then I think that would be appropriate, a single-shot spinal, because you needed to head to a caesarean mm. rather than having um, the complications associated with the GA is quite appropriate. Yep. But it's, it's tailored because not there's not one blanket rule that will cover them all. Yeah, and all this, none of this is based on any... Randomised controlled trials or any, or any interventional experiment. No, it really is just evidence free. And sleepless and, nights if you do it wrong. Yeah. And so we just have to make a decision because yeah, if you have a patient who looks like they'd be a high risk general yeah. anaesthetic, yeah, so mm-hmm. if they have a difficult airway, they're not fasted, um, or some other reason, then you know, you just got to decide what you think is probably the le- most 
And that risk is reasonably high as well. Like, yeah, we are talking about bleeding free. and it's an important risk, but equally, like, if you give them something, hopefully that risk is minimised, whereas the risk of an aspiration is quite high relative yeah, that's to right. that. Um, yeah. this, we're talking about rare, <coughs> rare events and for mm. the GA as well, because in general, most GAs go well. So it's really hard to know what to do sometimes, but usually you just have to make a decision and do it. Just going um, with the biostate, um, it contains <coughs> factor eight and von Willebrand mm-hmm. factors. Any, exactly. Anything else? Apart no. From those so by will, by, um, biostate is so if someone with von Willebrand's functional von Willebrand's dis- yep. type two von Willebrand's disease would give biostate. The tricky thing about biostate, it's actually dosed based on the amount of factor eight, even though you want to increase factor the von Willebrand's factor, because your bleeding risk is actually what's happening with your factor eight. Right. Some people metabolize their eight factor eight really quick. And so your von Willebrand factor might be high, but your factor eight is low. And so that's why we get a bit nervous about um, neurological removing epidurals mm. in patients yes. that have got type 2 and um, von Willebrand's disease for that reason. But it's only got factor eight and von Willebrand's, and it's twice the amount of von Willebrand's to factor eight. So I've definitely had phone calls where I've charted someone 1,500 international units of biostate, and that's based on the factor eight, not on their von Willebrand's factor right. in the dosing. So people check because they think, is that the right dose? Am I? You're writing factor eight, but they've got von Willebrand's disease. Is that right? It is right. It's not fair. It adds to confusion, especially at two o'clock in the morning. But that's yep. definitely what we're aiming for. And that's um, basically manufactured from Australian blood donors. Mm-hmm. So we can fractionate out the von Willebrand's and the factor eight and make them as a, a pair, basically, um, in set doses. Okay, that's good. So we need to consent them because it's a blood product. Mm. Yep. Is there any other forms that factor eight or von Willebrand factor come in? So in Australia, that's our only way to get um, in, a, in a purified or a, um, in a dose-dependent sort of way. You can, of course, try to fumble around with other clotting factors. So in the old days, you had to give um, cryoprecipitate and FFP, yep. um, but we don't do that now because mm. of all the reasons anesthetists don't like to give those um, other blood products. Yep. Um, we do sometimes. Yeah, no, no, sometimes sometimes you have to. <coughs> but not for congenital yeah. disorders when you have a more sort of targeted... Absolutely. Yep. Um, and it's also gone through fractionation <coughs> process that help try to minimise some of those infectious diseases yep. as well. That's true. Yep. Um, in other settings, these sort of patients might be considered for the use of DDAVP to try and increase the amount of von Willebrand's and, and available to bind to factor eight. But what we do know is in pregnancy by the third trimester, these women's levels can go up well and truly into the normal range. And so you've almost, I say quite crudely, like you're flogging a dead horse. You've already, those en- that endothelium has already released as much <coughs> as your factor 7, your factor so 9. So it's like they've already got. given themselves their own DDAVP. Absolutely. Pregnancy is their DDAVP challenge. Um, yeah. Might be different outside pregnancy, but not, not in the setting of Yeah, so, so just delivery. like reflecting on that, I've definitely, you know, have women coming for elective gynecological surgery. And we often yeah, have to go over and put a drip in and give them some DDAVP before they come over to the theatre. Mm-hmm. But it is oh, very comfortable. It's, it's less common seeing DDAVP given during delivery, mm-hmm. but I've seen some women have got it. So, so internationally, um, there's uh, some lead authors, um, yep. and one I'm thinking about is in Ireland. And he, if somebody's levels were borderline, so. Um, our reference range for um, the functional von Willebrand antigens and functions are between 50% and 200%. Yep. If he wants them between greater than 80%, that's what most international studies are working towards, kind of having a normal level greater than 80%, he will give them a bit of DDAVP to see if he can get from 30% to 80%. Yep. 
I that's not been my practice um, and that could have been how I've trained and also my experience where we are there are risks associated with the use of DDAVP especially in the obstetric setting so we know there's a risk of hyponatremia we need to restrict our women to one litre within that 24 hour period and if they're working really hard they're not going to like you Mm -hmm. and if they do have side effects there's a risk of um, seizures headaches all those things you get nervous about especially if she's preeclamptic anyway or had problems with her blood pressure. Yep. So I would not use it. Um, I have no problems in the first trimester of pregnancy. So say you have um, a surgical termination or a medical termination, I think that would be appropriate. And in our gynae setting, um, I think that would be appropriate as well. Okay. So, and so so the type 1 is the most common. How, how common is it that someone with type 1 has um, a level at, at term, you know, when they're del- delivering? Less than 80%, because normally you said it goes up anyway. Absolutely. So uh, So it'd be pretty unusual. Let's say Mm. in three years where I've just done obstetric haematology, I've only had one woman's antigen levels that didn't come into a level greater than 150%, not even 80%. Um, So they really, really, really do mount beautiful responses. And the biology behind that is their genetics. Um, So it's not just the numbers, it's how they're. So pretty much people with type 1 bomber I would still check it. When they're pregnant. The haematologist in me says, check it in the third trimester, and if it's normal, that's fine. Okay. Make sure you give them some TXA postpartum. Yep. Okay, because our postpartum, it will drop to back, back to their pre, yeah. pre-pregnant pre level, and they could be at risk of bleeding. Definitely. Yep. And we know that women um, who have congenital bleeding disorders, uh, international studies say their rates of bleeding is up to 40% despite intervention. Yep. So um, that's, that's, we, I feel like we should do better for our women. Tell us about the neonate because you've got something about that. So obviously some, some people who listen mm. to this are not just the yep, involved the midwives. in giving epidurals. Absolutely. So, so. Um, because it is a congenital bleeding disorder, uh, we do need to think about the about the neonates. And so depending on what the congenital bleeding disorder is, predominantly I'd be thinking about your haemophilias, your haemophilia A, your haemophilia B because they're ex-linked disorders. Yep. Whereas um, severe um, type 3 von Willebrand's disease and some of the some of the other von Willebrand's disease can fit the neonate. They don't usually, the neonate doesn't usually have problems, doesn't normally present with intracranial hemorrhage, but can have bleeding. Um, and so they tend to err on the caution of not doing a lot of invasive procedures to the neonate, but the risk is nowhere near as high as for those with severe um, haemophilia. But we do okay. say just be cautious. Mm-hmm. So no um, scalp electrodes. Yeah, we're careful less with, careful yes. with the and deliveries. So right? yeah, so if you have to, um, if you're going, if you need an instrumental delivery, a low vaginal delivery, low vaginal forceps would be acceptable in experienced hands, but we wouldn't be doing high abdominal um, yep. forceps. Uh, avoiding scalp electrode monitoring. With the vaccinations, the, hepati- the hepatitis and yep. their vitamin K, I always say to give them because the risk of bleeding associated with not giving with them is going to be exponentially higher than yeah, getting right. maternal. Mm. That's right, because if you already have a bleeding disorder when you're born and then you don't get vitamin, vitamin K, K, absolutely. Might, and so there was, in the 70s and 80s, I was saying you had to do a five-week course of oral vitamin K replacement to get to the adequate levels, right. um, and people just didn't give it. So yep. those mm. babies definitely had higher rates of complications of bleeding than if you use the smallest needle possible with five minutes of pressure to the site. Yep. Um, that's how that I've... That makes sense. That, yep. I think that's safer overall. And then how long do you wait till you start testing the neonate for these sort of things? So good. It's such a great question. So do, can you test the cord? So, you can, so if you're sure actually, you've got the cord, should, yeah. yeah, so as long as you don't have the mother's contaminated yes, cord, that's right. which 
probably mm. happen maybe one in 10 to one in 20 times. Okay, that's a bit too um, often. Yes, but um, depending on what factor it is, it will naturally increase during the first six to 12 months of life. So what I would do is if I had a woman who had haemophilia A and carrying a male fetus and she chose not to have preconceptional counselling, we can check the baby's um, baseline coags and if the APTT is 200 seconds and everything else is kind of 80 to, 90, 80 to 120 seconds, you're going to think that might be severe haemophilia yeah. A and then you can send it off for factor levels. Mm. And I do always have a dose of um, factor 8 concentrate available just in case at birth. Yep. Cool. Just in case. Very good. Excellent. So we started talking about haemophilia, didn't we? We just sort yeah. of by default, even though we weren't really... <laughs> so we can definitely move to a haemophilia case yeah. if yep. you want. So um, so haemophilia A, or a deficiency in factor VIII, uh, is, a, is the most... Well, how can I say? You'll see about one in 5,000 male births present with haemophilia. So it's okay. actually not that rare. No, it's not that rare, but especially if you're in a referral centre. Yes, yeah. and what's really interesting about that is that about 30% come from spontaneous mutations. Right. So two-thirds mm. actually yeah. come from a family history. And my experience with these women who are symptomatic carriers of haemophilia A, they're really not worried about this at all. They've got a family full of boys and girls with either um, symptomatic carriers of haemophilia or have haemophilia, and they don't see it any different from having red hair and freckles it's yep. really just part of what their family does and so um a lot wouldn't have preconceptual counseling unless they'd had a particular bad episode yep. so most just hit the ground running quite late and just pretend it's all okay okay you got a case so i do uh, present the case a pretty classical case so it's yep. um, a 24 year old it's in her first pregnancy uh, she tells me she has a family history of severe haemophilia a Three of her sisters are a symptomatic carrier. Um, she's carrying a male fetus, but she didn't want prenatal diagnosis. Her um, ISTH bleeding assessment score is six, and she's never, ever, ever had a coags test in her entire life because she's confident she has haemophilia. I spelled my name, my job wrong. Um, and she <laughs> has... <laughs> For those who can't, it's, it's spelled H-A-E-M-O... That's okay. It was a bad day. (laughs) (laughs) I was clearly distressed that she hadn't had any blood tests in her entire life. That's to do with blood in the ear. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly right. Um, So she she was just convinced she had haemophilia and so didn't... um, Never got a blood test, never saw a doctor, didn't really worry, but she was convinced that she had haemophilia. Can I just stop there? Mm. Because so... uh, I, uh, up until a few years, I started working in this hospital a few years ago, I always used to think haemophilia A and B as well. That mm. just affects boys. But you're, ta- you're saying here that um, three out of her six sisters are symptomatic and she has a bleeding score of six. Absolutely. So obviously, yeah. I thought, you know, women are lucky because they've got two X chromosomes so they get away with it. Uh, but obviously that's not true. There's more nu- nuance. Most, when, did we, when, did, when did we decide that or discover that? So um, there is something... So, yes, it's ex, it's an X-linked disorder. So, yeah. um, obviously, the male will be affected if he gets the X chromosome from his mum. Mum should have one normal copy of the gene and one abnormal copy of the gene. Yep. But if you've only got one normal copy of the gene and your abnormal copy is less than 1%, most women who are symptomatic carriers have he- um, have a factor eight level between about 40 and 60%. Okay. The sweet spot would be about 55%. So if I had to say a number, 55% yep. would be your number. 
However, because of the beauty of genetics, you can have abnormal lionisation of that X chromosome. And so you might actually have the last haemophilia B girl I looked after, her antigen level was only 5% right. because of her what her phenotype was. She's the only girl in her family who's been affected this way. And so that means that her any of her girls that are born will have that phenotype. So it kind of switches to the genetics of that particular individual and how it will affect that baby. So overall, yeah. males might be affected. But if this lady had levels of 10%, her her baby girl might have a level around that, similar sort of levels as well. So it makes it much more complicated. Yes. Um, So I, at 26 weeks, we did some, we did some, this girl's first coags, and lo and behold, um, she did also tell me she had a diagnosis of von Willebrand's disease as well. So we did von Willebrand studies and factor eight levels on her, and her factor eight level at 26% had already come up to 150%. So reference range between 50 and 200%. Mm. And um, my colleague went, Ripper, we can discharge her. She doesn't have von, she doesn't have haemophilia. And then I yep. said, Ah, but hang on, remember, hemoph- the factor eight will increase during pregnancy. And so to quantify that, we went ahead and did genetic studies and she indeed carries one of the... She has a mutation in exon 26 consistent with severe haemophilia. So she definitely was a haemophilia carrier. And so she was a... But she wasn't likely to be symptomatic. She, so the beauty of managing a woman with haemophilia A in, in at the time of delivery is that she'll have normal physiological increase in her vom- yep. uh, in her uh, factor 8 so she can be managed during the actual delivery stage as any other woman yep. so her risk itself shouldn't be higher at the time of delivery but we have to be careful of the neonate because yep. he will definitely or he or she will definitely be at risk of a bleeding of bleeding um, but factor 8 will start to fall from about day 7 postpartum so we really need to make sure these women have um, have some tranexamic acid and I would recommend four to six weeks of a gram TDS. Okay. And so even if the fetus is female, they can also I am, have bleeding They problems. can. Uh, and it's usually, it's not usually intracranial, um, yep. but we still are a little bit more, we treat we treat the baby as if they're severely affected, but we don't know unless they've had prenatal mm, yep. diagnosis. Yep. But presumably the... Yeah, um, an affected male fetus would be a lot more severe. Absolutely, yes. But and still they, we would do a neonatal management yep. plan and we would make sure they go to the NICU um, and have testing. They would get uh, yep. an intracranial ultrasound and within the first 24 hours of life. Yep. We wouldn't do testing until they started to get up and walk around. And that's an insurance quality of life, like a health insurance diagnosis quality of life. Most of the time we just right. let them get up, wander around, and if they bump and bruise, as everyone else did in their family, then they see a paediatric haematologist. Right. So, question about um, what sort of pain relief for Jamie? So, sorry, sorry for this girl. If she did want to have um, a neuralaxal analgesia, would you be happy? Uh, well, you've said that we can treat her yeah. as normal. And her factors are correct. Normal factor is so normal. Agreed. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So we, so we've learned something, Roger. Yeah, well, usually the, the answer is ask the hematologist because <laughs> <laughs> it's never straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Unless it's two in the morning. And then you'd still, you'd still ask me anyway. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. Um, and so I guess the only thing that I'd say differently for um, just to unpack just in the next couple of minutes of the podcast is if you have somebody who is factor nine deficient, so haemophilia B carrier, 
Um, yep. This is much rarer and it's about, it's quoted to have incidents in Australia about one in 30,000 male births. Uh, so much rarer condition. And what's not so fun is that these women's factor nine levels don't increase during pregnancy. Mm, right. So these women will definitely need factor nine replacement at the time of delivery. And we would keep their factor nine levels around that 100% for three to five days, depending on how they delivered. Yeah, so um, just uh, sort of going into that a bit more detail, is that similar to biostate or what's the half-life? So you give them an infusion... So we would do an infusion. So um, yeah. Haemophilia B has a longer half-life, and the new Haemophilia B products are pegylated, so they have yep. even longer. So you'll have to check. Okay, so, so you um, just give it before, uh, or sort of yep. around so the step would, when the labour establishes. Yep. So and it should last the whole time. Absolutely. Okay. But I would have another dose ready for her at that 24-hour mark. Mm. Right, okay. Yep. You can get, and I did with my last haemophilia B lady, um, I got her pharmacokinetics because I wanted to work out, could I give her neurolaxial analgesia? Mm. When was she going to have that beautiful trough? When was she going to drop? And if she was going to have a, we had this beautiful, um, we could predict how her levels were going to be. If she was going to have an elective caesarean, I would have said, yes, I'm happy with a spinal or an epidural. Mm. But because she was going to spontaneously labour, didn't know if she wanted analgesia, we said that was probably not the first option we'd go for unless she'd had another dose within two hours of, okay. um, of yeah. wanting an epidural. Yep. So it's all very nuanced. And, Sorry. Uh, yes. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's, <laughs> it's good. Right? From a um, health economics point mm. of view, do you know how much like biostate and these replacements cost roughly? I do. Um, they are they are tens of thousands of dollars per yep. dose. Wow. Yeah. We, we give it thousand. not uncommonly here. <clears throat> yes. Yeah, okay. Yep. We, don't, we don't throw it around. <laughs> no, but it's, you, do, you know, you do hear of it. Being yeah. Given, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, I'm sure, but you know, in the big scheme of things, it's pretty. No, it's true. I think, um, you know, it's pretty well yeah. money that's well yes, spent. Yes, it's hard to get one without going through a hematologist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I generally yeah. say yes. <laughs> well, you I still think it's money well spent in yeah. the health system. Yeah, yeah, for, for what you're getting. And if you think about all those horrible stories in the '90s where there was the contaminated blood, um, yeah. with you know that that is. And so presumably, you go back that. In time, they were getting crops or, they were. or plasma. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And so yeah. I do another case um, where I had a lady who was asked to see me because she, re- and I'm sorry we're going off topic, but she, um, they wanted, she refused to consent to blood. And it was because she had this, a family member who developed decompensated hepatitis C as a result of yep. blood transfusion. And she just wanted to know how we manufactured blood differently. How is it safe or mm. what do we do differently? Yeah. Yep. And it's a very, very valid reason um, for someone to say yes or no to um, a product. And I know that in um, Germany and Austria and places they got rid of um, cryoprecipitate back in the 80s because, for of, that exact because reason. of those reasons with Absolutely. HIV and Hep C. And, Absolutely. And the Republic of Ireland got rid of cryoprecipitate um, sometime in the early 2000s, I think. Yes. Yep. And it's also, that's the group that uses DDAVP in obstetric settings right. um, as well. So they're much more austere with using factor concentrates for yep. that reason. Um. Any other questions about those people with factor uh, either, I guess, the so we know haemophilia A is factor 8 deficiency, haemophilia B is factor 9 deficiency. In the really old 1970s textbooks, they talk about haemophilia C, mm. which is factor 11 deficiency. Right. And these these make me even cry and wobble because it's one of those, it's one of those properly nuanced disorders. It's rare. Um, so even it's very very rare um, I've seen one in the three years that I've been here and the problem with that is that you don't really know what their bleeding phenotype will be yep. the only international guideline says if it's less than 15% they will bleed 
Right. And that's as much it's guidance as you <laughs> Yes, mm. it's pretty low. And it's the most guidance that you have. And so, unfortunately, there's no a TGA or an Australian-approved uh, factor, uh, factor 11 concentrate. Yep. So we have so to... That's when you do have to do well, we actually FFP have to, or something? Yes, or? you can yep. definitely do that. But otherwise, we have to buy it from internationally. You have to do an oh, right. SAS okay. form and all this other okay. so stuff. You can, but you can get hold of something. You can get hold yep. of it. It's very much held by the Haemophilia Treatment Centre in the mm-hmm. state. Uh, yep. You have to do special access forms. Um, but the problem is you can't dose it... There is one set dose in one vial you have to give. So it's 9,000 international units, and it doesn't matter if a person's level is 60 or 5. Right. You get one dose to fit them all, um, and it's got a really, really, really long <coughs> half-life. So it's it's one of these. And there's also the problem with factor um, 11 replacement is that it uh, drives thrombosis so potently you can't give TXA. So if you're not going right. to... So you, you don't want to overdose them because you're worried about thrombosis. Exactly. So okay. I would usually, unless she's got a rip-snorting bleeding history and she's got levels less than 10%, I wouldn't be heading towards giving prophylactic factor nine, re- factor 11 replacement. Just leave it. In I would try TXA and have some ready and have that conversation with people. Yeah. So I think that's probably, for me, the most challenging because the... We don't understand enough about why some people bleed and some don't, and it's probably genetics, and we just don't have the information yet. But the treatment is not without significant risk. There's actually a black box warning to say watch right. out for thrombosis and don't use TXA. Yep. So that's a bit scary, really. It's a bit scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't want to cause a thrombosis. Mm-hmm. Well, I probably feel like... Probably had enough. I feel like we've covered a lot of really yeah, good stuff. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I've definitely learned a lot, quite a lot of quite a few things. Um we might, we'll have a discussion afterwards, we might mm. split this into two. I'm not sure we'll try and find a, a, a spot in the middle or we might just like cut it halfway through. And yeah. So if, you, if you're... Very undignified. Sorry. Undignified. <laughs> cut me off That's halfway okay. Um, um, or we'll just leave it to it. There's one and people can just like listen to it over two sessions. They could do it themselves. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think um, they can do it over two sessions. I think there's a good place to cut it. It'll just sound a bit weird. Yeah, I reckon we'll leave it together. Yeah. Um, just before we stop, I didn't know this, so I, I asked you before we started recording yes. the Rotem yes. and all these yeah, disorders. Yes. So the vast majority of women who bleed, uh, it's usually due to an obstetric issue, um, and so we should manage them appropriately. And so if you do have a woman who's bleeding, of course we're going to reassess their hemostasis. We're going to do um, some places we'll do standard laboratory tests, some places we'll do um, viscoelastic testing. And the disappointing thing is if you've, had, uh, if you've had someone who's bleeding and you think, could this be congenital bleeding disorders, your viscoelastic testing will not help you. Yep. So it's insensitive to von Willebrand's disease. If you've got severe haemophilia A or B, you might get a prolonged clotting time, but you'll have a normal XTAM and a normal FibTAM. Yep. Might depending on what platform you use, what methodology you use and how low their factor levels are. And remember, even in standard laboratory tests, you need to have coag factors less than 30% before you'll get prolongation mm. in your APTT or your INR. So the, tr- the truth is if, if you're unlucky enough to, yep. to bring someone who doesn't know they have a, bleeding, a congenital bleeding disorder, you're not going to pick it up in the middle of a PPH. Unfortunately, no. So, mm. so you, hopefully, though, they will just be, you know, you, you'll just treat them like, Normally, give them um, yeah. and hopefully you'll cover it. But but the more likely scenario is you'll have someone who's got a known bleeding disorder, who then starts bleeding, and then uh, we think we talked about this before we started recording. Is mm. don't forget that they can also develop mm. all the other things that other people develop once you've lost um, you know a couple of liters of blood. Mm. So as well as like ne- needing to talk to Anastasia and find out whether they need some more of the effect to concentrate, you should still be doing like a rotum or a viscoelastic mm. test. 
or whatever you have in your on your hospital to check to make sure they haven't got fibrinogen deficiency yeah. or, um, or or any other. Do the basics well. Yeah, keep Absolutely. them warm. Yeah, yeah. Calcium. Yep. calcium. Calcium, keep them warm. Check give them the enough pH. hemoglobin. Yeah, all those things. Yeah. Um, the, it's kind of akin if I was talking to um, very junior like, residents I would really say it's the same as having if you've got a factor deficiency or a congenital bleeding disorder it's like being on warfarin in the old days people used to know what that meant in the news days people don't know what <laughs> no. what's warfarin? what is oh, warfarin? Sure. I know <laughs> but in the old fashioned sorry everyone who's doesn't have to use warfarin but you have you have targeted deficiencies and you can give targeted replacements yep. but it doesn't mean that you're still not extenuating from your gut or bleeding onto your brain that's right and so yep. you're giving your targeted treatment but don't forget all the other bits that are bleeding and to manage yeah, those appropriate right. so just because you're giving prothrombinics doesn't mean that you won't need to give all the other blood products mm-hmm. indeed yep well that's been really useful yeah, thanks thank again you. for coming in Anastasia thank you so much and for well, inviting we're me we're going to have to um, come up with another co- couple of topics I think yeah. something on anemia would be yeah, really good I'll have to get you that I can do that I've got lots of ideas. <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Thank you very much. Thanks. Cheers, everyone.